Hey, Jamie, I've got a question for you. What do you want, Tom? Who's on the podcast this coming Friday? Oh, is it someone big? Boy. Is uh, it a big one? Shall I bother listening this week? Yeah. If I was going to say uh, take. And I would say off no, your trousers. No, no. Take. Me out. No, take. Paddy McGuinness. No, take. Take on me. Take that. Wow. Have a little patience. But hang on, presumably you've only, you haven't got all three of them, have you? Presumably you've just got one of them. Buddy, we have all three of them on the podcast. They've released a new album. It's coming out. They're going on tour. They talk about the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, on everything that happened in Take the That. The ins, the outs. And they reveal it all this Friday. Exclusively. On Private Parts. That's a big one. I'm going to listen to that. Hello, I'm Pete Strauss and welcome to this week's episode of The Mediaverse. Every week we try and sometimes succeed to answer the biggest questions facing the media industry today. I'm joined by a god amongst mere media mortals, <laughs> an untamable talent who will surely go down in history as the single best employee of his generation. <laughs> it's our senior producer, Tom Payne. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> as always. And this week we have a guest in the studio. I'm going to quote directly from your Wikipedia page here. Oh, shit. He's an Irish singer, <laughs> dancer, cinematographer, director, producer... I didn't write that, I swear. ...writer, <laughs> presenter, plus actor. He is best known as a member of the pop group Liberty X, and he's also our senior producer here at Spirit, is Tony London. Hi. I didn't I'm, know you were an actor. I'm not an actor. I, I genuinely don't know who wrote that, I swear to God. Where did actor come from? I, I must know. have got it from somewhere. But um, Wikipedia is like anyone can change it. So there, I have had a few PRs in my time back in the label days, so maybe somebody... Shall we go through and change somebody. it back? What would you change it to? Uh... If I was to change All it, I'd probably just... guy. <laughs> I think you're being serious. I am. Okay, thank you. Let me cross that out now. Yeah, can you delete that bit as well? Um, what would I change it to? Is that the yeah. question? Or what would you change oh, it to? Oh, you can just get rid of it. Just delete the page. Just delete the page. It's quite can you long. actually delete the page? I mean, I've printed it out. It's three pages worth of info about your life. 
And is there anything interesting? I'd love to know if you read one that's not real. I mean, I think it's all quite real. I mean, should you explain? Do I need to explain? No, I don't. What are you going to explain? Well, who the fuck I am for people who most people won't have a clue. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows who you are. You're Tony from Liberty X. Okay. Yeah, go on. Explain a little bit about yourself. This whole podcast is going to be about you, but. So who are you, Tony? Is it is it really all about me, or is there anything else being discussed? No, it's mainly about you. It's mainly about you. Nice to see you prepped it really well, lads. <laughs> we put it out your Wikipedia break. This is more prep than we do normally. Since I started, I've been planning this. I think I'm a director, if I'm honest. Yeah. Everything on that page has led towards me being a director. So what is possibly on that page is that I started off as an Irish dancer, professional Irish dancer, um, and then moved on to being in a, in a pop band. Did I do that next? Yes. And then I did some property development, which I think actually informs my ability to direct. You did property well. development. Yeah, we can put that in there on your no, Wikipedia page. No, put that in there. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't go particularly well. Um, well, it did, and then it didn't. But well, then um, film came after that, and a directing course, and now I mostly produce, which I'm not sure how that's happened. But um, if I was evolving life of Tony, mm-hmm. if I was to change it though, I'd probably just put. Probably just put producer now. Okay. Just cross out all the others: singer, dancer, cinematographer. Yeah, I was a shit singer. I was a mediocre dancer. I never At the Christmas acted. party, <laughs> you were a brilliant version <laughs> of both. <laughs> Let's talk about the Irish dancing. How 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 did you get into it? Uh, my brother, my eldest brother, got an hour off school on a Tuesday and used to come home with a lollipop as well. I hated school with a passion. I would have done anything to get out of class, even a primary school age. Yeah, yeah. So I put my hand up. I was like, I am destined to be an Irish, a champion Irish dancer. <laughs> As luck would have it, I was, and so was my brother. So we ended up traveling to competitions together. Yeah. Then I started meeting girls at the tender age of probably around 11, 12, and I started getting in interest, healthy interest. I was playing Mega Drive at that point, so. Yeah, I was, I was well behind. If you, were <laughs> a good, if you were a good Irish dancer, you could punch above your weight. Okay. Does that work in Ireland, being particularly talented Irish dancers? No, it worked outside of Ireland more than... Um, oh, Ireland. really? Yeah, so like you're travelling to British Nationals, American Nationals, World Championships, which were all in Ireland. Um, but if you're winning competitions, it's a bit like being, you know, it's like a tiny little version of being in a pop band, really. Yeah. Um, the girls know your name. So that was your first taste of fame? I got drunk on that. <laughs> <laughs> a um, sweet taste of fame. And that's why I stayed Irish dancing. And mm-hmm. you performed at the Oscars? Yeah, so... I finished my leading cert, which is the equivalent of the A-levels, when I was 17. And at that time, Michael Flatley had just been sacked acrimoniously from Riverdance um, and was suing them. And then as payback and also because um, he wanted his own thing, he created Lord of the Dance. So that launched the week after I finished my exams. I got on the train. I remember finishing my last exam, which was science, I believe. And I left a half hour early and I remember walking past everybody in my class, heads down still, didn't get a chance to say goodbye to everyone, but didn't really give a fuck. Um, <laughs> went home, had some of mommy's lasagna. I never call her mommy either, so I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> had some of mum's lasagna, jumped on the train. I think it was the six o'clock train and straight away got the beers in. 17 years of age, heading off for uh, the first time. And then within six months, so I joined that Lord of the Dance troupe, the um, the original one, and then six months later we were on the Oscars. Did you audition for Lord of the Dance, or did you get scouted? Or I kind of got work? scouted. I was asked to do the very first performance Flatley did as Lord of the Dance, as the Lord. He chose, I think it was about 10 or 12 lads, um, and I was one of those lads he chose. I couldn't do it because I was in my school play. 
and it was the bloody dress rehearsal. It wasn't even the opening night, but it was the, yeah. night of the dress rehearsal. So it was like 16, 17 at the time, chance to go on, I think. Des O'Connor was the show or the okay. National Lottery Des O'Connor wow, wow. get flown over get put up in a nice hotel paid a lot of money for 16 year olds and be on TV and then you kind of walk into the show if you want it and I had to turn it down because I couldn't let my I couldn't let my schoolmates down so, um, so you were very young when you got into it was that a bit yeah. surreal um, not re- yeah it was surreal but it was also just like a great big party because the 30 or, or so people that joined Lord of the Dance all at the same time, the original troupe, yeah. we were all best mates anyway. And we all, I suppose, unconsciously decided to be in this show rather than the other one because we all wanted to do it together and we're all kind of coming of age at the same time. So it was like me and my best friends and my brother were all joining the one troupe. All expenses paid, around the world tour for three years. Are you in? Um, of course. Basically what <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sign, I'd right? do it now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's amazing. What was was fame something you always chased? Was that just kind of a byproduct of the things you were liked and the things you enjoyed? I've asked myself that a few times. I don't think I chased I think it pro- it did definitely inform my kind of choices. It yeah. must have mm. to be like to be famous or to be kind of not respected or to, yeah, to be famous I suppose. Um in Irish dancing no because you never you didn't do Irish dancing to become famous, but then I was getting attention because yeah. I was good at it. So I honestly think that I enjoy recognition if it's for something that I'm genuinely good or better than average at. Um, If I get that for, so in the pop band, for example, where I wasn't a particularly great singer and I was becoming famous for activities that, you know, were average at best, um, I was really uncomfortable with that, like massively uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Um, if If I haven't earned it or if I feel like I don't deserve it, or if I don't know it, if I'm not a master of whatever the subject material is, yeah. I don't feel like I should be held up there. I feel very uncomfortable being held up there. Yeah. And um, but then when I feel like I've earned it, um, then as a byproduct of that work, fame's good. So you know? from doing Love the Dance, you applied for pop stars. Yeah. What was that like? That was... Um, and why did, why did you even think to do that? What was so, your, yeah. genuinely, I was in Lord of the Dance and I got to lead. Michael Flatley retired and I took over his role and I used to alternate it with another guy. But I got to the point where I was like, it doesn't get any better than this as a professional Irish dancer. Yeah. You're the lead in the biggest show in the world. There's nowhere to go from here. The money in Lord of the Dance was decent for my yeah. age, but it wasn't what I'd be getting paid in Riverdance. Like, my... Um, compadres in Riverdance became millionaires at the same level I was never going to earn my millions from staying lead in Lord of the Dance I was never going to defect to Riverdance because it was seen as defecting um, even for millions he wouldn't well at that point they had their leads anyway it was kind of it was hard to break in play too late. there was nobody knocking on my door offering me a million quid <laughs> <laughs> not, not yet, yet. That's not, yet. <laughs> not yet well I had it in my head as well anyway that if I was going to be in a band I would need to do it when I was quite young yeah um in terms of self-awareness, I thought I, I'm not good enough to be a lead singer, but I'm good enough to hold a tune and be yeah. in a band really interested in writing and producing. Actually, if I could be a good writer and producer without being in the band, that would be probably the ideal. So okay. I, le- yeah. I left to move to London to chase that dream. When it became apparent, I actually walked into the office as well. I remember this as true as God's my judge. I had to walk into the Lord of the Dance office and tell the production manager 
and our bosses basically flatly wasn't there. I'm resigning, and they were convinced I was going to Riverdance, and they kept on at me saying, "Just be honest, just tell us, you, you know, contractually you can't do it, and you know, if you lie to us, then we might, you know, all, all manner of yeah, uh, really. threats." And I ended up just saying, "Look, I'm tell, I'm just going to be a pop star. I'm just going to come out with it. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to become a pop star." And they started pissing themselves off. Like, <laughs> laugh all you fucking want, but I'm going to go to London. I'm going to learn how to write songs. I'm going to write, produce, and I'm hopefully going to release some material. Um, see you later. And then I saw that production manager um, a few years later because he invested in a show um, that a mate of mine was a lead in and I bumped into him and he raised it. He was like, I can't believe that actually came through, you jammy bastard. <laughs> it actually came through. Are you, are you one of those guys that wants to commit something, you have to do it? Like for you, Don't having know. said that, did you have to achieve that? No, I think I got lucky. I think in a way like, you know, Matt's whole thing, you ask the universe and it might respond. Yeah, maybe not. I think I've asked the universe lots of things since and it hasn't responded. It's completely <laughs> fucking ignored me. Like anything else I've read? <laughs> yeah, like plenty of things. Um, but I won't go into some of them without getting divorced. Um, <laughs> but the, the idea of going into music, I think, came from a fairly pure place. I knew I didn't want to um, remain an Irish dancer and I knew that I could probably take that on. I'd been um, a classical violinist, you know, as a kid, okay. been in an orchestra, felt like I could write a song or learn the bits that I didn't know. So I felt like, yes, I have something that I can probably explore and make a living off. Yeah. And then if the rest comes, brilliant. But I feel like I've got something solid there. Um, and then, so I did move to London. Uh, couldn't get anyone to write songs with me. Couldn't get anyone to teach me how to produce. Didn't want to spend four years on a degree to then become an engineer for another 10 years to then get fucking fired by a superstar producer who's claiming the credit for all your hard work anyway, yeah. which is what happens to everybody. Yeah. So decided being in a pop band is the easiest, it's the fast track to working with the biggest producers and the biggest writers in the business because they get paid to work with you. So um, I auditioned for one band, which became Blue. Uh, really? Auditioning for yeah. Blue? That's they a chose, scoop. They chose Simon. Um, oh, yeah. he was. Have you choice. seen him since and gone? Oh, I could have been. Me. No, I don't think they're even. I don't think they even I walked, remembered. I walked past them in Soho about a year ago. All together, oh. yeah. Then they all got. They've all declared bankruptcy. Really? Yeah. yeah. They've all declared bankruptcy. I think since. all of them have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's to do with all that tax crap. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Audition for them, really terrible audition. But I got invited down, so I remember the three of them being in the room, and then. I decided, you know what, this pop band malarkey is a load of shit. I was going to go back home and study law. And I had a place at a university in Ireland to study law. My family are lawyers. Um, and I would have been actually perfectly happy with that as well because I was quite interested in that. Yeah. And then my mum rang me and said, right, before you come back, and she was really keen for me to come back. Before you come back, I've heard about an audition. You should just go um, just so you've no regrets. It's for this TV show called Pop Stars. It's an ITV thing. Look it up online. So I looked it up, thought, fuck it, that'll be my last ditch attempt, and I'll go home happy two weeks later. And then somehow I got through, and I kept getting through these rounds. Um, and I was very, very close to getting cut one stage, I remember. And that was the point at which I, I let it slip that I was in an Irish dance show and I had been lead. And all of a sudden I realised that if you make yourself stand out from the crowd, yeah. you'll get through the next stage. Yeah. They'll give you one more chance. And I started to realise actually if you can just get that one more chance, you can keep progressing. You can turn it into something. Yeah. So what was the experience of pop stars like? Being on a hit ITV TV show and... The time it was filmed, there was no hit. It wasn't gone out live. It was like flying the wall documentaries. I remember, there was cameras yeah. around. Oh yeah, it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't But it wasn't intrusive. The crew were all pretty cool. 
Um, you could tell that Nasty Nigel was the pantomime villain. He was actually quite nice when the cameras were off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was intrusive as in there's a camera in your face and I hadn't really sang in front of anyone before and I was doing a bad job of, of some of the um, <laughs> like, shameful, some of the auditions I saw afterwards just made me cringe. Um, but it was, it was okay. There was plenty of other people involved and then there was a sense that I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. From very early on in the competition, I had a feeling like, I don't know why, but this, this feels somewhere. like it's going well. Yeah. Um, and then I got through to the final 10. Um, at the point at which the show started airing, it became all a bit different. It was like, here's the mug shots of the final 10 in the Sun newspaper. I remember reading it in my local corner shop and thinking, shit, that's me. And the previous week to that, they had shown everyone sing a little bit. And it was actually the first time they showed me singing on the show, I think. Okay. So I hadn't, there was no clip of me singing on the show that demonstrated that I was actually able to sing whatsoever. All they ever showed was this dreadful audition. So I felt a, like this massive paranoia that I was being judged by the dude who owned the local corner shop in Portobello Road. Who, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But just yeah. this sort of like, oh my God, eyes are on me. I've embarrassed myself. Who would pick me and put me in this? Did, did you worry it was going to almost affect the rest of your career? If that, went, if that had gone badly in a certain way, it could have been like Darius. Remember Darius? <laughs> he did quite well though. I think he did West End shows and stuff like he that. He did lots, and he, and he married a movie star. That wasn't too bad. Mm-hmm. Did um, Darius did he, sounds great. Who did he marry? He married the Natasha something or other. Um, she was like, was she an alien in some movie to do with aliens? She sure. was. She was in like, I'll find out. Yeah. Um, but no, it didn't worry me that it would ruin a career because I didn't really have one and I didn't really know exactly where it was going to go. It wasn't yeah. like I was trying to become a serious artist. I figured I'll be a performer because I've been a performer and I might make loads of money and have a good life doing it and then we'll see, whenever I become serious about life, we'll see what I'll do next. So I wasn't, wasn't worried about the future at that point. What was it like not winning? I fully expected it because I never believed I would be in the final band. I, I didn't do enough. Okay. A, did you get an idea before yeah. of who was going to be in the final band uh, no I would have picked completely different people I would have left myself out because I didn't do enough to get in but I would have picked Kev immediately the first choice he had by far the best voice in the whole competition and he's yeah. a good looking lad I cannot to this day understand why he wasn't chosen um, maybe not as sort of media savvy at that time Right. As the other two lads, maybe okay. that was the reason. He might have been harder to handle in terms of management, but actually he was a you know, he was a puppy, he was like cool to be in a band with. Right? Yeah. So they got that wrong. I thought they got the girls wrong as well. Um I won't go into who uh, I would have picked. Oh, go on. No, they've, just, all, well, they've all had good careers. Will anybody remember this anyway? Any of the listeners? Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely they will. I like Kelly I thought was an obvious <laughs> one as well, who's the lead singer in Liberty X along with Kev. Yeah. I thought that was an obvious one. Um, other than that, I think everyone else was sort of interchangeable. It could have been anyone out of the remaining few. But Kelly and Kev, I did not comprehend how they couldn't have been in the final band. Was there genuine rivalry between you and Hearsay, or was that... That emerged. Correct? It yeah. emerged. At the start, there wasn't, because they won, and then we were literally cut off. None of them even rep- replied to texts or anything saying congrats, because they were probably told not to. Right. Um, but also, at the time... They chose not to, um, which you know didn't really matter because we didn't know them that well. I only met them three times over really? three weekends during the audition process, so it wasn't so like you were all my quite mates. segregated. It was 
Well, everyone was there, but it's like there was so many people there. Like you kind of get to know them, but you don't. I wouldn't. I yeah. wouldn't have considered them friends. If at you all. saw them now, would you say hello? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like you'd have a good chat and everything, but I still wouldn't consider them friends. I don't know them. I don't really. I haven't spent any time with them. Yeah. So I wouldn't have expected them to give a shit whether I was in the band or not. Um, but it was afterwards that we decided to form the band and do it our own way and try and get signed. I remember we were trying to figure things out and we saw them on some TV show or other and they all got in a line. This stayed with me because I'm not one for like carrying chips on my shoulder, but it really pissed me off. They got in a line and they did this rowing a boat motion and, and one of them said, um, you know, row your own boat or something. Basically, like we're just trying to jump in, jump on the hearsay bandwagon, oh. which is fair enough. But at the time, you are number one in the charts. You've just had the dream life handed to you on a plate, mm. and you're speaking through the TV to people who have nothing, who have been branded the flop stars and the whatever. And I thought, you five beeps. <laughs> you know, payback is going to be a bitch. Payback is going to be such a bitch. So I wouldn't say that necessarily inspired all the work we put in after yeah. that. But in the back of our heads, Did that um, you we, there was no, not really, like, we just wanted a life for ourselves. We didn't want yeah. a life because hearsay were dickheads at the time. Um, so, but when we did actually manage to get a deal and manage to get number one, we, I think, I think we went to do a gig in Mauritius the week after and we heard that hearsay split up while we were on the beach with cocktails, having just been number one. And everyone looked and just went. That must be pretty sweet. We all just looked at each other and did this little roll in the boat motion and Such thought, well, look at right now. Yeah, yeah. Schadenfreude moment there. Yeah. <laughs> who did you end up signing with? Um, V2. So Richard oh. Branson had to sell Virgin to be able to fight British Airways in court to the tune of, you know, he had hundreds of I thought you were going to say you had to sell Virgin to afford your contract. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he was allowed, five years later, he was allowed to start an indie label. Mm. Um, which became V2 yeah. um, and Stereophonics were their main act at the time they were kind of having number ones Elbow who are one of my favourite bands of all time were yeah. on V2 we were pretty much the only pop act so we went in there with half an album and with an idea as to what we should be doing the A&R didn't want to touch us because he was quite credible still is quite credible sorry Malcolm um, <laughs> uh, but Richard Branson said do it you know, give the underdogs a shot and make it happen. And they did. Wow. They're a pretty amazing label. Like the team there were, you know, we wrote a lot of the tracks and we did a lot of the work, but they did, they packaged it, didn't they? Yeah. And they, in terms of the promo, when it came to selling us to radio, they did a phenomenal a job. great job, yeah. On TV. So 20, you know, being 2016, at the the music industry to me, you know, my background was music as well. Being in the music industry now would terrify me. Yeah. Like what was it like back then for you guys being a part of that? Just 95% um, machine, 5% creativity. So get in the back of a van at 5 a.m., go to the first radio interview, repeat. Um, you know, when you're doing, it's just cycles, isn't it? So, like, you do your album recording cycle six months of going to studios, meeting someone different who has a four bar loop for you that sounds just monotonous and shite, and you're expected to come up with a melody and a lyric on top and demo it by 6 p.m repeat that loop until you wow. finish your album. Is that how it works? That's how it worked for us. And that's why most pop albums aren't cohesive. They're just, you're working with different people every day. Everyone's getting their little two cents in. And unless you're a really dominant force in the creation of the album, you know exactly what you want to say and how you, you want to say it. 
in which case you probably wouldn't be you know going through this process yeah it's very hard to keep the reins so traditionally it's the a and or then who keeps the reins because they're supposed to have the master plan and you're their minion and they send you out doing what you need to do so there's a bit of that going on but then also there's a bit of us actually knowing that you know are having to write the tracks anyway that's the album process then you do your pre-promo you might have a few weeks off and then you just promo the hell out of it for a year and that is every single you go on a two-week radio tour you go to every radio station in the country have the same conversation with every single dj and every single radio station like the lack of imagination is just incredible yeah by the end of it you're ready to go mad you start the infighting because you're in the back of a van for 12 hours a day and then you do your gigs at night to earn your money because the label can't take a yeah, piece yeah. of that or they didn't back then yeah know. that's nice that's a huge difference and i guess when you guys first started, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube weren't things. So yeah. it was, you literally have to do the legwork of getting in front of people and being on telly and being on radio. And The only way to get on radio was by going face-to-face with them and giving them an interview. If we didn't show up for the interview, they'd say, you're not getting a playlist. So it's always a give right. and take. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We had to... We had to buy access to the playlist by giving them their interview, by showing up at their roadshow gig in the summer and doing it for free. Yeah. Um, that's how it works. You get playlisted if you do the favours. And then, you know, sometimes you just have an incredible track and people will say, yeah, we're going to play it because you've done all that prep work. Yeah. So we did that for the first three singles. For the first year, we did that. You know, every day, radio, TV, radio, TV, a few gigs here and there. And then... Um, you get your hit and then it becomes a tiny bit easier but for when I knew that we weren't ever going to become a massive band it's probably around the time we had our number one and the next single we still had to go around to every radio station in the country they wouldn't just play anyway. your dues, yeah, yeah exactly you're not you haven't kind of you're not up at the next level yeah um, would, you still, would you want to make another record again is no. music something that interests you 
Um, if it was to do with a film, possibly yes. If there was a if there's a film that I had directed, maybe written and directed, maybe even edited, and needed a violin-based soundtrack, <laughs> um, yes, I would do it. But I don't know if I'm that precious anymore. Like I'm, I genuinely believe that the reason I fit in this world is because I've learned how to collaborate. Okay. So if I then take all that control back, who am I trying to satisfy? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm in it for my own self-satisfaction. I think, I think I need that collaboration, number one, because I don't have that faith in my own abilities to the extent that I need to just, you know, express my own voice. Yeah. I, I really sort of enjoy the process of getting somewhere I wouldn't have got to on my own. What do you think of the state of the music industry at the moment? I think it's pretty exciting, but that's based on my blinker view. I think if we were a band just starting now and we're a bit more mature... Yeah we would A, learn how to own our own social audience, build our own audience and own it. Our audience was owned by V2. When V2 went bust, we had nothing. Yeah. We got an offer of a deal from a major label 12, 18 months before we kind of got dropped from V2 and we didn't take it out of loyalty, stupid loyalty really, because they helped break us and we didn't want to walk away from them. Yeah. They didn't have the money to take up our option. But they'll walk away from you. Um, but 18 months later they walked away from us and they said well you didn't really come up with the, the tracks that we think could be hits so we can't invest more money but we should have just walked away um, so we walked away with nothing and now if that happened you'd walk away with your audience your entire yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see why you true. even fucking need a label like if you can build 10,000 dedicated followers on your YouTube on your Twitter and on your Facebook or whatever you want to use you can gig you can do an album a year, which has got to make you feel good because you're in control. Yep. Sell that direct, and then you can gig to that same audience and slowly build from there for the rest of your life. Control everything. But I think the major mindset change that people need is they need to kind of understand that writing the album and recording the album, the bit that's really creative that everyone enjoys, you need to extend the creativity into the marketing, into the audience building, and yeah. you need to own it. Yeah. You need to embrace that as an opportunity to, to communicate with people um, and be excited by that phase rather than make your album, give it to all these people who will then exploit it for you and rip you off, and then you never get to really own your audience. Thanks for the interesting. We had a meeting with Hobby Stewart a year or two ago who's a YouTuber, yeah. musician. Quite like a pretty big following. He's got quite a lot bigger since we spoke to him. But he was with Sony for a while, mm. realised they couldn't do anything for him that he couldn't do himself. Left Sony, sold out Coco by himself. Mm. And you kinda so you kinda go, like, what what is that role of labels now really? If you can build your own audience and set out venues and sell records digitally, like what is the role of a label these days? I think there comes there comes a point in which a label then comes back into the fore um, or into the frame, at which point you need a machine behind you. Um, and it's, it's worth giving up for a, you. Yeah, yeah. It's worth giving up a big piece of the pie for that machine to kick in. But you, you make that decision based on they're buying you, they're buying your creativity and your artistry, but they're buying your audience yeah. and access to their audience and you retain ownership of that. And then also you can make sure, your management can make sure that you're a priority because we noticed as well, we were a major priority for V2 when we were publicly, if we had failed, V2 had failed. So your Monday morning meetings when they go through the roster, you are talked about at length. What the yeah. hell are we going to do with them? As soon as you drop down that priority roster, yeah. you're fucked. You're, that's being shelved. You're still on the list. You're yeah, still yeah. doing something, but no There's one There's no value anymore, really, to be on the label. It's just... Yeah, it's pointless. Yeah. What? Uh, the 
differences between like the reality of being a pop star and the perception of it? Because you getting in the back of a van and being driven around isn't how I imagine a pop star to be. Um, so the real, if I can answer a different question, like the parts of the life that felt very pop starry were like you get back to London, you've got a little bit of time, yourself, you can go to any club you want, you can arrange to just walk past the queue. Oh really? You will be brought into the VIP. Um, I always had to be walked past it because no one ever recognised me. So <laughs> um, I was always slightly nervous about the approach to the bouncers. Like, yeah. Going, Who's that dude? Um, but yeah, like quite often it would just be arranged and we had security at one point so you'd just be ushered through, you're brought into the VIP, drinks are for free, you know, you're getting to meet interesting people. I didn't really get to meet them because I was at the bar really with Kev getting wasted. <laughs> um, but there's parts of the lifestyle that were pretty incredible. Yeah. We didn't earn massive money, but we earned decent money for our age. Uh, we weren't successful internationally, which is why we didn't earn a fortune. Is that what you need to really yeah. kick on? Yeah, you need to be selling in multiple territories and then you kind of start printing money, really. Um, it's the touring that we, we would have earned money on back in the day. And if you're only touring in one country and you can only do that every few months, you hit the same spot and do the same yeah. gig, you're limited. Um, so yeah, there was parts of the life that were pretty incredible, but I never took the full leap. I think I, I genuinely think people in pop, you can see when they take the leap, they go from being, I'm a normal person in this incredible situation, becoming a pop star, but I'm still keeping the reins on normality and reality. And then they leap across that divide and they are very firmly in, I am a star and I will be a star for the rest of my life. And I can act this way because I'm a star. Yeah. Um, and I never took that leap because I, I knew that my talent didn't stack up, I think. Did you kind of always know that this wasn't going to last forever? Yeah. yeah. I was very much a tourist the whole time. So I started studying film the month after we were number one. Because I was like, this is as good as it gets here. And I was going oh, really? to repeat Lord of the Dance. I was like, this is probably as good as it's going to get. And it won't last. It cannot possibly last. Is there anything else that I'm better suited to? Because this is... There's not going to be a solo career. I'm not the Robbie of this band. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, at one point I thought, could I be? Could I be the Robbie? Like, you know, Shane McGowan can't sing for shit. Um, <laughs> but then I was like, I don't love it enough. I just don't care. Yeah. I just don't give a shit. Like, I hated writing songs by the end of it, which is the reason I got into it. Because it was like... You're just churning them out. You're working with vegetarian butchers. That's not my phrase. Someone else said that, and I've, I've taken it as my own. Well, you're, you're working with vegetarian butchers, you're creating, you know, sausage meat for them to sell, but they wouldn't eat it themselves. Um, and then you end up just looking at that sausage meat and thinking, ugh, I'd love a salad. Um, <laughs> sorry. That's a good analogy. That's a great analogy. Moving on from the VX. Yeah. The time the VX. You went to New York Film School. Mm-hmm. How, why, when, what? I had always had, well... So when we were when I did my first film course, I knew straight away that this is what I should be doing. In fact, I was quite a little bit annoyed at myself. I hadn't realised that previous to then. Yeah. Everything kind of made sense. Um, kind of figuring out how to use a camera to dance around your subject and use the people who are your subjects to kind of create something and then music and performance and everything intertwines and then actually being the kind of person who can get things from people because you're not a dick, uh, you know, or at least that's what I like to think. Um, all started to make sense in a way that I was like electrified by, I was like, shit, I have to prepare for studying film, however this works. So um, the way I prepared was I saved as much money as I could. I bought two properties 
um, and I did decent deals on those properties. One of them needed, or one of them gave me the opportunity to extend. So um, I put those plans in place and waited until I had enough money and waited till the band ended. And then the day we said, right, that's it, we're not doing any more, started the renovations. And the plan was to make a fuckload of money from those two renovations, which were in an incredible area. Um, yeah. And I was on course to make a fuckload of money and that was going to fund um, four years in New York because it's my favorite city on earth. Yeah. It's if ever you're going to leave and enter a new life and think of yourself differently, it's like go to that city and immerse yourself in whatever you're going to do. So that was always the dream. Um, and then I did my renovations and they went tits up because of the crash. Um, I had structural problems that slowed me down. Um, so cash flow issues. And then the crash happened and I couldn't, Basically, I couldn't get out of it. So I, I watched the profit just disappear, managed oh, to stay God. afloat. Yeah. Um, but at that time, I had no money to study film. So I was like, this cannot be fucking worse. But what do I do? Um, luckily enough, I went to an internet cafe. Again, I shit you not, I sat down and said, I'm going to look for a job. I don't know what jobs I qualify for, um, but I'll have a little nose around. And I, I shit you not, I had an email from a producer in RT in Ireland, the state broadcaster there saying, you're probably not interested, but... We're looking for a TV presenter for three months for a kid's show to fill a gap in the schedule. It's low pressure. No one's going to be watching was pretty much what I was saying. <laughs> do you want to do it? And I was like, you know, hell yes. We'll give I it a shot. So I did that and it lasted a year and a half. And in that year and a half, I was able to kind of get my plans together, figure out the money thing. And then in the space of two months, I sold my property, the remaining property. I got married. Um, moved to New York and started my film course. In two months? Yeah. Busy two months? It's pretty busy. <laughs> good. good feeling. How long were you in New York for? Uh, only a year and a bit. Um, we got pregnant over there and then realised that the passport would be good for the kid, but the cost um, of raising a kid and bringing a kid up in New York when you're not doing extremely well, if you want to live in Manhattan especially, Yeah. really, really challenging. So... They, you know, I knew I needed to start work and not fuck about at university for another four years. I wanted to start a small little production company. I knew that, that the best chance I had of making that work was back in London with all the existing contacts I had. Yeah. Um, and also just to be close to family when we were raising a family. So um, we, we managed to have three boys in one year. Uh, me and my wife. You get a lot of stuff done very quick. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hard, do you? Yeah. I'm noticing a pattern. <laughs> you just go bang, 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 and then leave it for a year. I've never <laughs> been to see a shrink. Um, I'd love to go see a shrink to kind of I make sense. I told you come out a changed man from the yeah. podcast. Please. We should do a I'm podcast, you and a shrink. I'd just be interesting. see what your issues That'd be are. a great podcast series if people would open up to a shrink on tape. Yeah. We should do that. That's much to um, copyright better yet copyright you can't say that now interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry where was I uh, came back thing, so came had back. three kids so we had one boy ten months later we had twins prematurely I had no idea we could have twins but it seems my dad was a twin we just didn't hear about his, his brother because he was still born um, so we managed to have three and then yeah the choice was to have a family rather than fuck about New York for four years um, and therefore as a result um, I needed to get work again, so I started a little production company. And the production company is called The Cell Productions. Yeah, award-winning small business. <laughs> what kind of so? What kind of stuff do you do at The Cell Productions? Or did you do at The Cell? The first gig I got was 
a friend of mine was marketing manager for the scouts and she had made this video that she'd hoped would be a viral um and it was terrible and she said can you help re-edit this into something and i had nothing to do and nobody willing to pay me so i just said can you rather than um give me um a, a tiny budget to re-edit can you like i'll work for free if you can give me a budget to reshoot so I managed to reshoot something that did very well for them. It was kind of widely viewed among the scouting network, <laughs> which sounds a bit... It was but their most network, watched video worldwide and has since aired across the Discovery channels in the yeah. UK. Yeah, so we got free TV Research. spots on the back of it. And well it, yeah, it did, it did well. So as a result of that, which was me basically working for free for about three months, yeah. um, I started picking up bits and bobs of work. So learned how to shoot, had been editing and then continue to go to courses. So my plan was one third of my time I would do um, paid work, whatever I get paid to do, don't have any standards, just do it with cash. Um, one third of the time I do passion projects where I probably wouldn't get paid, but I would move myself forward and shoot kind of showreel building stuff. Yeah. And then one third of the time I'd be on courses. So I couldn't do my masters in Columbia, New York, but I could get myself to every course probably with tutors that were equally as good for a fraction of the cost in London so that's how I divided my time for the first couple of years then I realised that I was not earning anywhere near <laughs> that was basically work. one third of a job <laughs> yeah with three kids yeah and I mean, how did that come to how did you come to spirit um one of my bandmates Michelle Heaton and her husband who's a personal trainer rang me one day and said we want to start a YouTube channel would you do it with us and I said no, because it wasn't my, again, it wasn't my dream to kind of learn how to master YouTube. Yeah. But I did think they had something. Um, they had a business in them. They still do. But it's, it's kind of, it started on YouTube and where it goes from here, I don't know. But they had this idea and I thought there was something solid there. And she's got a big social following. So um, I heard Matt Campion speak at an event called, it was, it was on Transmedia, which I know is no longer a term, but it was called that at the time in Ravensbourne yeah. Yeah. in London. And he was on a panel and he was quite engaging, quite interesting. And then there was a few other people I heard speak and I was like, okay, maybe I should be thinking about getting a job here because I'd learned so much more. Um, and then I entered a comedy film f uh, competition run by Hattrick, myself and the um, Megan Sophie, you know, the girls, um, oh, F and Fletch. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. And, and a part, a business partner, mine, Rupert, we kind of co-directed stuff. We did a quick um, comedy thing for that competition, ended up winning. And Matt and Tom were there that night live streaming it. So I just went up to Matt and said, you're the guy I heard speak. I'm the winner of the competition. Give me a job. <laughs> <Give me a laughs> money, Matt. We should talk. <laughs> yeah. And what was weird about that night was Dave, you haven't met Dave, right? But Dave was a producer at Spirit at the time. Yeah, and Dave has since Happy moved Dave. to Australia. Um, what was his nickname? Did he have a nickname? He, have a nickname. he was a red coat at Butlins. Yeah, so that, that was what came up that night. He, he had been a red coat at Butlins and he was basically me in the tribute act of Liberty X at Butlins. That's insane. And when he left, you came spirit basically. And I basically so swapped took, out the fake I took his Tony job. for the real Tony. Upgrade. Yeah. How many. <laughs> Liberty X tribute bands could there have been? There was like an in-house Butlins tribute band to Liberty X. Right. And Dave played Tony. <laughs> Does he look like you? Not really. Not really. I suspect that same band also did tributes to lots of other pop acts. Yeah. I don't think we were that famous that we had. Although I did hear there was one other dedicated Liberty X tribute band. Um, and yeah, I wasn't too happy. Well, yeah. 
the guy who the guy who was playing me was like he was yeah he seemed like a cool guy and he was he was very talented but it must be a weird like, life being in a tribute band yeah mm-hmm. like they do quite well yeah really well they well, tribute band. Them the other day the rates they charge to get them are yeah the big money. ones like you know the um, ABBA tributes and all that they're making incredible yeah money. they're filling out like you know three four thousand. Um, person venues, which is a- Amy Housewine gets a lot of work. Does she? <laughs> okay, okay, sis. Uh, the Rolling Clones. They nice. honestly, they charge ridiculous money. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so, what kind of stuff do you like working on now? You're a producer. What? What? What's your? Is it broadcast? Is it branded? Is it? Both? I feel most is at it... home with scripted stuff, where because I I had I have approached everything with a kind of director hat on. If it's written on the page, I can see I can figure out how I would bring it to life, whether it's right or wrong. Um, and I went through a process as well with a directing consultant called Simon Phillips, who has a system, the tools of directing, it's called, that breaks everything down really um, in a way that made sense of the process for me, the process of being a director. So I really enjoyed taking a script and applying that process that I'd learned from going to his seminars. Um, and then, you know, doing as much prep as you can and pre-visualizing as much as you can and trying to understand what the kind of tone and the soul of the pieces you're trying to make, which for branded content, there usually <coughs> is none. Um, but, you know, the odd time that there is, getting on set then and just making it work because you get hit with all manner of shite and things yes, going wrong. And it doesn't matter, you have to make the best decision on the fly and still bring it to life. Do you think that process works whatever content you're making? Because it's true, you know, we make a lot of short form, digital, most broadcast. Do you think like, the same process for you applies to whatever you're making? Um, I think it could do. Like, if it's not scripted, then it's like, how, how do you get it to a point at which I suppose the brief is so clear that you know beat for beat what you're shooting. Yeah. And then how do you know instinctively that you're not getting what you need in the moment and give the right note to adjust so that you start getting what you need. So yeah, that part of the process is probably is the same. And I come back to gut and a bit of experience really. Um, But when we're doing like branded content where it's kind of social video that doesn't necessarily have a story at the heart of it, that's where I'm probably not, I don't add as much value, I think, because it doesn't, I can't get my mitts into the, the story arc or the character development. And therefore, I'm a little bit lost as to what the point is. Yeah. And I know there is a point, um, but sometimes I just don't give a shit about it enough. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, that's quite an interesting point, because I'm getting <clears> the mindset that all content in the heart should have a story, it doesn't matter what yeah. it is. And I think we've gone through a cycle, especially branded content, where that hasn't had to be true. And I do think that we're shifting into a world where that does have to be true now, that actually every bit of content needs to tell a story, otherwise it doesn't have any value in the current space, I think. Yeah, um, which makes me feel better about the world we're in, because you know, I did intend on directing stories exclusively, and yeah. then I thought, well, am I doing that at all? Um, but I do think we're moving towards that, and there's exciting things ahead for the people who know our world or get to know it very quickly. Yeah. But who also come from that, you know, storytelling sort of background—not background, but they have that storytelling um, leaned or bent or um, what were we trying to say? I suppose they just have that—they um, have that within them that they inherently want to tell stories that mm. therefore create some sort of human emotion that then has an impact that then creates the impulse or action that a brand wants them to take. 
Um, it doesn't have to be a brand, it can be a charity or it can be whoever you're servicing. But if you get that right and you affect somebody emotionally and then they're more likely to do what you need them to do, that's a good feeling. Yeah. yeah. I know when we worked on that as yet unreleased Channel 4 project, yeah. you were always trying to find the story in that, weren't you? It was always... Yeah. Sometimes, like to some extent, out of fear, because I genuinely fear showing up on the day and not having a clue as to what I'm after and why. Yeah. So it's like the fear of not prepping enough because my confidence is based on mastering what I'm after and then I'm good to go. Um, so the prep is, is part fear and part the story's got its hooks into me and I'm trying to understand what I'm supposed to go after or what, um, what story I need to tell. And then throwing that away has been the hard bit. Like when you get to the shoot, literally burning that little production manual or Bible that you've created for yourself yeah. and saying and trusting that it's all in your head and you just, in the moment, get what you can. Um, that's quite exhilarating. Tony, thanks for coming on the podcast. Cheers, boys. Thanks for having on, huh? it's on. Please subscribe, leave positive reviews and follow us on Twitter at MediaversePod. Like us on Facebook and listen back to old episodes if you haven't already. Thank you for listening. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.